Thank you to Wildcare and Wildlife Acoustics for sponsoring the Bat Chat podcast. Can you hear that? We can. Wildlife Acoustics creates the world's leading bat acoustic monitoring tools, designed to help scientists make impactful discoveries for our biologically diverse planet, turning this into this. Visit wildlifeacoustics.com to learn more. Wildcare are committed to supporting the ecology industry and are specialists in supplying a large range of monitoring, conservation and habitat management products, as well as equipment hire and service and repair. With a large range of products coupled with friendly and expert help and advice, Wildcare is a favourite supplier for ecologists nationwide. Go to wildcare.co.uk to see the full range and quote BatChat at the checkout for 10% off all bat detectors and bat boxes. This is BatChat, the podcast from the Bat Conservation Trust. Hello and welcome to the second half of our two-part special recorded at the Natural History Museum in London. I'm Steve Rowe and this time I sit down with the senior curator of mammals at the museum who hit the headlines back in 2015 when the news broke that the museum had discovered a new species of bat and it had been sat on the shelves in the collection for 30 years. There's around 80 million specimens in the Natural History Museum and Roberto Patella Miguez, I said that right? That's correct is the senior curator in charge of mammals. So Roberto, how did you come to be in charge of the mammal collection here at the museum? Well, it's a sort of like complicated story because I mean, I've been in the museum 17 years now. Uh, but I think to explain how one gets in this type of role, I think I have to go as far back as when I was a kid. Um, I was, um, my parents and my family originally all were farmers and fishermen. So I was uh, constantly surrounded by death of animals around me, which I think predisposed me to be able to cope with one of the aspects of these jobs, which is that you're surrounded by dead animals, carcasses and gruesome appearing specimens. So uh, that helped to uh, get into the mood of things and get into the job. Uh, I think uh, later when I sort of joined the museum, I actually started uh, working in the galleries as an assistant and volunteering in my days off with the collections and with the scientists that work in these collections. And eventually, over time, I built some experience and slowly I was offered the opportunity to work in a more permanent basis with different contracts in different groups uh, within the zoology department back then. And uh, eventually, I just sat in this role. I became a permanent curator of mammals about 12 years ago and slowly progressing through my career till now lead the section. So, I mean, 17 years, presumably you've seen the museum change in the way it works and things like that. What's, what's the biggest change you've seen in that time? I think uh, there's obviously, aside from the broader changes, which are uh, in, in the interest of addressing sort of questions relevant to society nowadays, uh, we have changed as a structure, we have changed plenty of staff, has retired from the time when I started, and new ones have come in. New methods, new techniques to explore the collections have changed as well. Uh, back when I started, uh, you used to have to chop uh, about a square centimeter of skin to be able to look at some DNA, and nowadays, just a simple uh, hair will do the job. So uh, a lot of things have been improved and progressed, and things definitely have to change because the demands and how we understand the changes in nature uh, are different from back then. So uh, we now, I think, possibly engage in 
more multidisciplinary projects that cover multiple groups at the same time. We involve, are more involved internationally as well in collaborations with other countries, other organizations abroad as well. And also the makeup of the staff is also very diverse as well. So it's a fantastic place to work nowadays, I think. Yeah. And what does your day-to-day job entail? That's a complex question because as a senior creator in charge of the section I, of mammals, you would have thought that I just sit quietly on my desk and just <laughs> look at the skulls and the skins all day and then every so often publish a paper, <laughs> but it couldn't be any further from the truth. Yeah. I think um, you have to have uh, uh, flexibility and adaptability to uh, work with this collection because the demands on it are quite high from all angles, really. So I'm involved uh, not just in the sort of science exploration of the collection, but also on the public displays that are produced. I deliver talks and for public events, do a lot of outreach, provide content for webs, provide content for books. Uh, And I host hundreds of visitors every year to the collections, um, as well as, uh, because of that, having a lot of collaborations with different groups of researchers all over the place as well. So it's quite a diverse role. So my day starts generally setting up a lot of visitors, then trying to figure out what I'm going to do, how I'm going to tackle some of the more uh, urgent uh, inquiries to do with the section, and then uh, just try to go through that. Uh, Some days I'm fortunate that I can um, dedicate some time to one of the projects that I identify as critical or important for me of of interest, Um, but most of the day I'm just trying to facilitate things so the collections can be maximised. And having most of the described mammal species here in the collection, how many bat specimens do you have in the collection and how many species are there in it? So the only science would be that I don't know. (laughs) I don't know because uh, it's one of the largest collections in the world and we only have part of the database. So it's quite difficult to figure out how much is actually there. But it would be on the tens of thousands, if not hundreds of thousands, just for the bats. this, uh, what I can tell you that I do know is how many species we have, because a few years back we did a sort of an inventory of all the species that we have represented across the mammal collections. And so um, we used at that time a publication uh, which was called Wilson and Reader, uh, uh, Mammals Species of the World. And at that time, it was published in 2005. At that time, they estimated that there were uh, about 5,400 species of mammal. Nowadays, we know there's more than that. It's probably on the 6,500. Um, but anyway, in that uh, particular period, the number of bat species in that volume was about 1,100. And we found in the collections over 800 of those. So it's one of the most comprehensive collections. Uh, if you are interested in studying the diversity of bats or any aspect of uh, bat uh, morphology, conservation, ecology, evolutionary history, uh, this is definitely the place to come. And what sort of scientists use the Chiroptera collection? It's, uh, so traditionally, and for the most, are people that are interested in studying the diversity of bats, trying to identify or describe species, uh, see uh, what representatives are out there. But um, more recently, there's more conservation-oriented. Uh, even if they are not actively engaged in conservation, a lot of people question the collections to see what records of species existed out there before and then compare to what we now know that exists out there and see if it has 
decay or, in, or if there are species that were missed in previous assessments and so on. So, um, but that's not necessarily limited to that. So the majority is obviously usually a scientific inquiry that uses the collections, but we have also in the past had artists using the collections. We had uh, designers using the collections. So uh, I had people looking at uh, bat feet to uh, look at a potential design for the webbing that goes on, uh, that is put up by builders when they're uh, re-roofing a house. Yeah. And breathable roofing membrane. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So the bats don't get trapped or can disentangle themselves from that. So that type of thing just happens like that. And uh, a couple of weeks ago, I had somebody that was looking at a costume design for a PlayStation game. And so they were interested in just some gruesome specimens that they could use for the design of a costume of a character in a PlayStation game. <laughs> so... And just before we started recording this, you've just been uh, showing me some, a small part of the collection. Mm -hmm. um, but for the listeners at home, which is your favorite specimen in the collection? So leaving aside the one that I described, because obviously that's close to my heart, uh, I think the, my favorite species will be uh, Kitty's uh, hognose bat, which is also scientifically known as Castronicteris uh, togolensis, which is one of the smallest mammals and vertebrates uh, is about barely uh, two centimeters, just over two, two, over two centimeters, yes, uh, long. And it's just fascinating that a mammal could be so small. I think that you could have the same sort of body structure as this, a polar bear would have, more or less, and still be a mammal and fly as well, <laughs> which is just... It's just one of the things that is common to bats that also blows my mind, that uh, a mammal that flies. It's, uh, how can you not fall for these guys? If you have any interest in mammals, you surely have to appreciate bats, apart from many other things. <laughs> and what sort of challenges are there with maintaining a collection such as this? Uh, there are many challenges because it's a large scale in terms of collection, over half a million of specimens of mammals. And, and obviously, there's few of us. <laughs> to keep an eye on everything and to look after everything. And it can be quite demanding in terms of maintenance. Uh, some of the collections that we showed earlier were the fluid-preserved collections, which are specimens preserved in alcohol. Alcohol evaporates, so you need to constantly be vigilant about it and keep an eye on the jars so the specimens don't dry out. Uh, and, and then just the access demands for it. There's a lot of uh, visitors coming from all over the world, uh, in the hundreds, and so managing that side of things uh, to make it in a safe and secure way so the collections do not run any risk is quite challenging. Yeah. So. And what relevance does it still have? What, what new discoveries are made from the collection? I think uh, nowadays it's probably become more relevant than any previous time before. I think like now that we know the impact of human activities in the, in the world out there, uh, and we are trying to assess what that impact is and come to terms with it and uh, so we can put things in place that can help to preserve the nature that we uh, still remains. Uh, the collections had got a new lease of life because of that, because uh, people can come and dip into them and see the historical changes. This collection was started about 300 years ago and it represents 300 years of actively collecting specimens from all over the world from every possible place that you can imagine, even re the remotest islands uh, we got the specimens from. And, uh, and therefore, it's a good historical record. Uh, and so people now are revisiting those in order to assess what has been the impact of human changing the world. And, um, but the, also from 
other aspects. Now, uh, the molecular work is not just restricted to looking at is how different this species is from another, but also potentially exploring the genetic mechanisms that help, for instance, a species like bats uh, carry so many diseases and yet do not feel hampered by that. Uh, or look at, uh, for instance, why do they live so long, some species of bats as well. So exploring those genetic mechanisms can now also be possible with elements of this collection, with parts of this collection. So it's a new lease of life. Also, we now got other equipment like CT scanning, which allows you to, for instance, get a fluid-preserved bat and scan it completely without damaging anything of it, and then you're able to look at all the skeletal uh, structure, and that can help you to identify things uh, like not only tell what species it might be, but also figure out elements about its locomotion uh, and compare it with other species and so on. So it's, it's now really the time for collections, I think. And I think it's also a good time in terms of international collaboration. So we are very open from people from all over the world to use the collection. And, and this has encouraged a lot of dialogue between scientists not just from the same discipline, but from other disciplines to cross-fertilize ideas and, and look at the different topics from different areas. So, for instance, one of the projects that I had a few years back, it was looking at uh, lemurs. Uh, and it wasn't just um, because they're cute, but it was uh, out of genuine interest in terms of uh, reviewing the literature of lemurs. I, I thought there was something missing about uh, how do we know exactly what these animals eat. So working with, uh, I contacted a botanist since I work at the museum. I got colleagues in other departments and I thought I maximize on that, contacted a botanist and I said, what do you think about this? And we developed a method in terms of like looking at the diet of lemurs, collecting their feces, looking at the seeds, but also sampling the plants that they might feed on in the areas where they live and depositing those, which is the key thing of this, of this project was, depositing those samples in museum collections so people can actually then afterwards verify what we said that they eat, mm, yeah. which was uh, not ever done before. So people will go into the field, look at the animals and document their observations. But as we now know, uh, thanks to the molecular revolution, it's quite difficult to tell a species apart just by eye. So... Um, it's necessary to collect samples from the wild so you can actually then deposit them in museums and let future generations also verify what your claims are. And you mentioned just then uh, cross-collaboration and back in 2015 you helped discover a new bat species mm -hmm. which had been sat on a shelf in the collection just a few rooms away from where we are now and that had been sat on the shelf here for 30 years. Mm -hmm. um, the bat was collected in July 1983. Can you tell us a bit more about that story and how the discovery came about? Sure. So um, I usually, uh, when I have the time, and because I know what researchers that are visiting us want to see in advance, because uh, they declare to me their methods and what the question is, so I can see whether it's appropriate use of the collection or not, I usually then go ahead and prepare in advance the part of the collection that is of their interest, so it's more accessible and they can maximize uh, the time of their visit. So I knew that there was a, a colleague of mine uh, from Thailand, Pipat Soisok, who was coming to visit, and he was particularly interested in rhinolophids in general uh, from uh, Southeast Asia. And so I decided to go ahead and then start doing some databasing work with that part of the collection. Most of the collection 
has been databased, but there's still big chunks that haven't been done, and that's the case with the Rhinolophid Fluid Preserves Collection. So I started doing that, and uh, then PIPAT came along, and then we had a look at uh, one of the species that was uh, there, and then he noticed that the fur coloration on that particular specimen was quite different from the rest. And he said, oh, maybe this is a new species, because it looks quite different. And we had this discussion about, well, it could be a melanistic form. It could be a genetic abnormality. You know, there's no jump to conclusions here. So what do we need to do in order to verify this? And so he immediately, following his traditional method, said, oh, we need to take the skull out of the specimen. And I said, well, if it's going to be the, a new species and we only got one specimen, maybe we shouldn't go ahead with the knife. So let me use the CT scanner and I'll extract the skull digitally and then we can take some measurements and compare things. And that's what we did. So I went, scanned the specimen, collected some measurements, then we put it and compared it with a huge table of data that we had for all the groups. And uh, when we did an analysis of that, it showed that it was quite different. But obviously nowadays when you're trying to describe a new species, you also need to integrate the molecules into this. And uh, at that time, not much work had been done with fluid preserve collections and so for the DNA purposes. And most people gave up on that because most specimens that are preserved in fluid are usually go through first a bath in formalin, which stops the decomposition of the specimen, but also scrambles up the DNA. And so we didn't think that it was possible to sample this one. In any case, we were also curious about the fact whether this species still occurs in the wild. Mm. And people being from Thailand, he has a lot of contacts with conservation organizations all over Southeast Asia. So he contacted some colleagues that were doing some surveys in Sabah, the place where this specimen was collected, and said, well, would you mind having a look and see if it's still there? And actually, they went there, found a colony, and then they said, yeah, apparently it's still here. We're able to take a few blood samples collected a couple of specimens, and they collected a few more tissue samples, and then we had both, not just the metrics, but also the molecular side of things to compare and establish that it's actually a valid new species. Make it sound so easy. <laughs> yeah, it's, a, it's, a, it's actually surprising that I can say this in <laughs> such few minutes, because uh, it actually, I think, took probably two, three years until yeah. we actually published everything. <laughs> and, so. you've, and you've named it after the person who collected it originally, France, uh, the Francis's Woolly Horseshoe bat. Yes, uh, it was collected by Charles Francis, who is somebody that has worked extensively uh, throughout Asia, published extensively there, so it's helped tremendously for people to figure out what actually you can find in terms of mammalian fauna in that neck of the woods, and so I think it's well-deserved. It's not just for having collected it, but because of his extensive work. And I mean, you've just pretty much answer the next question but what role does the museum play in current bat conservation and how will the institution help in the future this is it so there are species in here that can i mean one of the things that we get from conservation uh, staff is usually before they set off in their uh, exploratory tours of a particular area they usually first come to the collections here and have a guess about what species might occur there and get familiar with how they look like. And they build up this sort of like personal identification guides. Because when you sort of try to find a field guide for certain parts of the world, they just don't exist. The experts haven't gone around there. Nobody has done any collecting. There's no museum specimens for that, maybe. So um, they usually come here. They have a sort of a rough idea 
of what species have been reported for a country, and then they check those, but they also see if there's any others from, other, from that country that might have been missed from the field guides, uh, and then they produce their keys. So without that, I think a lot of the conservation efforts will be blind to begin with, you know, without a baseline of what might occur there and how it might look like. Um, but then also when they go in those fields and they do their biodiversity assessments, their rapid surveys, and they collect some specimens that they might find that they cannot identify or tell from immediately, usually that happens quite a lot with the small mammals because, you know, they just you just see them uh, flying away fast or skidding away around the corners and disappearing too. And all the rats look the same, all the bats look the same. So unless you, you take uh, the specimen and look at it carefully, then you won't be able to tell what species it is. So then when they collect those specimens, they need to compare them with a collection that is as comprehensive as ours, so they can discard different species that they might be and actually find out whether it's a new species or it's one of the others that we already know about. So the collections in that respect offer all that for conservation to begin with. And, and then we already obviously talk about uh, baseline data for what species might have occurred in the past there and so on. So they have incredible relevance for anything to do, I think, in my personal view, with anything to do with biological sciences. You know, if you're trying to determine what uh, diseases are transmitted from uh, that might affect humans, you need to identify what species can transmit those. And so, you know, whether it's bats, whether it's rodents, uh, for those purposes, the collections can be fantastic in order to do that because you can explore the DNA in the collections to answer some of those questions. So um, there are yeah, multiple uses for the collections. Sounds the most amazing job to have in the world. It is, it is. I, I consider myself very lucky and very privileged to be here. It's um, opened my eye to lots of opportunities. Uh, it allows me to engage with collaborations from all over the world. And the museum is a fantastic platform because uh, it also sits uh, uh, in a very privileged position where, you know, whatever we produce uh, reverberates through the media waves. So when, for instance, uh, we release uh, or produce the press release for the bat, uh, this was incidentally Halloween. And... Therefore, it was published in The Guardian, National Geographic, New Scientists, all over the media. And, and that is phenomenal. This is because you work in this museum and it allows you, the teams that we have here for media relations and press uh, are really good people that uh, have a lot of contacts and allows for you to disseminate the science that you do, the value of the collections, not just within the UK, but across the world. And that is a fantastic opportunity because... I think uh, in the times that we live, you need to engage people with the uh, research that is done about the natural world. So, And finally, something we're asking all our guests on the podcast, which three words would you use to describe the bat conservation movement? I think the bat conservation movement in the UK, I wouldn't put it in three words. I can't put it in three words. I, I only have to say uh, praise for people that are engaged in conservation. I, uh, I think... Uh, because I know that most of these are volunteers' efforts, and I, I find it amazing that people, after coming of their daily jobs, tired home and having to deal with the family and all that, they still find the time to go out at night with their bad detector. And then not only just for their own pleasure, um, listen to the noises that bats do, but then report those findings. And so I'm, you know, about the people that do that. 
Um, because it's a very important effort. It's the only way that we know whether species are present here in the UK. You cannot collect bats in the UK if they are protected by the Wildlife Countryside Act. So uh, unless we had these volunteers, we would be blind to the bat diversity of the UK, which is terribly important in ecosystem management. So I think um, I'm just, you know, about all the conservation effort that is done on bats in the UK. I think it's, it's amazing, something that should be encouraged, and I hope people continue to do so. so. Great stuff. Roberto, thank you very much. Thank you for having me. That was Roberto Patella-Maguez, Senior Curator of Mammals at the Natural History Museum. If you enjoyed our two-part special, we'd love to hear your thoughts on social media or by leaving a review of this podcast. Join the conversation using the hashtag BatChats. Next time, we're spending the day with James Shepman in the counties of Berkshire and Wiltshire. Now, lots of you have seen me in branded t-shirts and hoodies with the BatChat logo on, and you've all been asking me when they'll be available. Well, we're thrilled to let you know that a whole range of BatChat clothing and tote bags is now available for you on our T-Mail store. The link's in the show notes. Whether you're a long-time supporter or a new member of the BatChat family, we can't wait for you to share your photos of you wearing our merch on social media. Be sure to tag the Bat Conservation Trust in your posts. If you're listening to BatChat on Google Podcasts, we wanted to let you know that Google have announced they plan to discontinue their app later this year, so we recommend making the switch to an alternative podcast app, and we've put some links in the show notes to alternative apps that you can follow BatChat on so that you don't miss any future episodes.